Hello, my name is Dr. Jim Doty, and I'm the host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast, where we explore the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. Today, I'd like to share with you on my podcast a conversation that I had with Eckhart Tolle on February 12, 2013 at Stanford University as part of the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education Conversations on Compassion. I know many of you know Eckhart Tolle as a spiritual teacher and also the author of The Power of Now and A New Earth. This conversation will be in two parts. So please enjoy the first part. I know you'll enjoy this extraordinary conversation. We do know certain truths. We know that there are individuals who have for millennia been attempting through great introspection to understand how the mind works. And it is through this introspection that we have learned a great deal. It has allowed for transformation. And only now is science catching up and validating some of these old truths. For those of you who may not know Eckhart Tolle, his groundbreaking book, uh, The Power of Now, which Oprah did a 10-part series, which over, I think, 35 million people watched and was very powerful, then followed by A New Earth, Stillness Speaks, and a variety of other books. Eckhart's insights, his understanding of self, the great introspection, has been very powerful, and this has led him to teach literally tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of individuals, gain insights into their own lives and transform them for the better. So tonight we're going to have a little conversation. I'm sure I'm going to learn a great deal. I first met Eckhart in June of 2009. We were together down at the uh, Global Alliance for Transformational Entertainment. Now, uh, this was uh, the entertainment industry. I'm still waiting for the global transformation of entertainment, (laughs) but it was a wonderful star. (laughs) And then uh, we met again with His Holiness up in uh, Vancouver at a peace dialogue. So without further ado, because I know you have not that much interest in hearing me, so Eckhart and I had a wonderful pre-talk conversation. Uh, one of the things we were talking about, and I, one of the things I, I was saying I was interested in is what happens in people's lives that lead to changes or transformations. And I was going to ask Eckhart to maybe tell us about what it was in your own life or a little background about your life that resulted in ultimately, if you will, a transformation or a great insight. Mm. Well, unhappiness, basically, uh, intense unhappiness, sometimes called depression, anxiety, periods of anxiety, depressions, throughout my 20s, and even in childhood, I was already predominantly unhappy. I remember when uh, we lived in a three or four story building and when they were painting the outside of the building they built a scaffolding I was about six and I thought oh we lived on the ground floor so well as long as there's a scaffolding I have no problem whenever I want to commit suicide I can just climb up and jump down so I'll be okay as long as the scaffolding is there that's my way out that shows the degree of unhappiness (laughs) and then 
At 29, I just, it became more and more acute. And uh, one night, the thought came into my head. I describe it very briefly at the beginning of the power of now, in the middle of the night. I can't live with myself any longer. There was in such intense unhappiness. And uh, the depression, it was just too much to take. At that moment, uh, an inner separation happened. I couldn't have explained exactly at that time, but retrospectively I can explain now what happened because I understand it. I didn't then. An inner separation happened between the unhappy self and my a deeper sense of I or beingness, which I now call consciousness itself. So I had been identified throughout my life with an unhappy mind-made entity consisting of self-images and, and ideas and self-talk in the mind. It's the self-talk that most people are familiar with, but in my case it was particularly destructive and unpleasant. But everybody is familiar with the self-talk in the head. I sometimes call it the voice in the head, uh, which are quite simply the automatic compulsive, one could say, thought processes that never stop, that uh, either comment on your sense perception, whatever is happening around you, a running commentary. You might recognize that. It might be familiar to you. If you don't recognize it, then you're so identified it with it that you don't even know that you have a running commentary on your life. You have become the running commentary in your life. In other words, that as happened to me, become totally identified with the compulsive thinking that never stopped, that voice in the head, that in my case was predominantly negative. And so the emotions that then I felt continuously were the reflection of the predominantly negative self-talk about myself, about other people, about the situation I found myself in, there was ample justification for negative self-talk because I was struggling, I didn't have enough money, I was trying to prove myself, working too hard, had problems with, couldn't find a girlfriend, was too shy, all kinds of twisted up inside. <laughs> and uh, so I basically there was this unhappy me but I, at that night, I disidentified from it and stood back from it, so to speak. And I suddenly thought, this thought that came to my head, I can't live with myself any longer. There was a stepping back from the thought, and I thought, are there two of me or one? What does that mean? I can't live my, with myself. Who am I and who or what is that self that I cannot live with? Then that thought brought about the separation. And then there was an I... And then this unhappy me was somehow recognized as not real. Uh, but at that time, I couldn't have explained it. I, it was a very strange experience. All I can say is the next morning I woke up feeling totally at peace and just waking, opening my eyes, looking around the room, and everything seemed fresh and new. The light coming through the curtains, the most the simplest objects lying in the table had a certain presence, a benign, wonderful presence to them. Everything I acknowledged, and it was lovely. And there was this underlying peace. And I said, what, what is this? 
And then I got, I was living in London at the time. I was, I got on a bus, even going through central London on a bus. Everything seemed so, pe all the people running around the city, everything was so peaceful. I said, this is so strange. And, and then I, I bought a, a di um, notebook and I started a diary and I started with this first entry was, I don't know what happened to me, but it's something weird. I just have to write this down in case I lose it again. <laughs> But somehow it stayed with me. It didn't, the, the intensity had variations in it of the, the piece, but basically there was always since then always some piece in the background of my life. <laughs> so that was the, a shift in consciousness. And much later when I started to investigate other spiritual traditions, Buddhism and mystical Christianity, Gnosticism, Sufism, Zen Buddhism, also the great Hindu teachers, Gradually, I began to understand that what happened to me, they call awakening or spiritual awakening. <laughs> and so, the understanding wasn't there. There was just the experience of it at first. Do you think that a lot of people in the West are doing, if you will, mindfulness practices? And the idea is to, if you will, quite often very difficult to stop the talk, but being able to not respond to the talk... And is it, you think, because it takes so much energy to constantly be distracted, that suddenly when you don't have that, you have now the ability to actually respond yes. and, and feel the senses and the perceptions? Yes. So most of the, the self-talk, the voice in the head, is conditioned by one's past. It's conditioned by one's education, one's upbringing, the culture you've been brought up in and many personal factors, your parents and so on, all these makes up the kind of talk that happens in your head, a great step forward is already to realize that there is a voice in your head that talks all the time. <laughs> because that's a, that really, I would say, that it's the first glimpse of an awakening, because to realize that there is a, a continuous self-talk happening, a lot of it totally unnecessary, by the way, it, I mean, we're not talking about the thinking that is helpful and useful and can solve problems in your life and create new things. The mind is potentially a wonderful tool to be able to use in that way. But for many people, the mind is a kind of torture instrument 80% of their lives. And they would be much happier and much more productive without the self-talk. So the first realization is that there is a voice. And that I call that the first awakening because that means something else has come in. A, we could call that another dimension of consciousness has come in, which we could call awareness. I sometimes call it awareness. We could call it presence. And I think in Buddhist terminology, that would be called mindfulness. I personally don't use the term, although I, it's a wonderful thing, mindfulness. I don't use the term because it implies that your mind is full. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it's actually realizing there, and this is the beginning of realizing there are, two, there are two dimensions of consciousness possible in you. One is the dimension of thinking, which is great. But a more, a more vital and deeper dimension is the dimension of simple awareness, which means consciousness, when you think, consciousness takes on a particular form. Every thought is a thought form. It's an energy formation. Uh, I'm not a scientist, you're a scientist, but 
I think if uh, if you are totally honest as a scientist, you will probably admit. Don't ask for too much. No, <laughs> you, you will probably admit that that science even now doesn't quite know what a thought is. Uh, no, you're you're yeah. absolutely correct. And in yeah. fact, the more we pretend we know. Uh, confirms reality that we don't, uh, I think. Is. So uh, it's, my approach is not scientific, but I think there's a lot to be said for looking at it from a scientific angle. But my approach is totally experiential, so you can see for yourself, find for yourself, there is that voice. And then you become aware that that voice has certain patterns to it, repetitive thought patterns that tend to occur again and again, perhaps every day of your life. I had thoughts for years. I had certain thoughts like whenever something happened that wasn't good, I had a thought that would comment on it in my mind and it would say, of course, bad things always happen to me. It's bound to happen to me. It's, of course, always bad things happen to me. And they did. <laughs> so it always confirmed that I was right. And, <laughs> and, uh, then with a disidentification, realize there is a space of you from where you can be aware what kind of thoughts are going through your mind all the time. And that the awareness of thought is not a thought. It's simply the ability to look at a thought like a light shining on a thought. And I call that pure or unconditioned consciousness, whereas the thought is consciousness that has become a form. An analogy we could use is to say that consciousness is the vast ocean and thinking is the waves and ripples on the surface of the ocean. And every wave and ripple has a very short-lived life. It's very fleeting, like every thought, but it pretends to be, have an independent existence. And then what happens is this continuous identification with the stream of thinking leads to a very serious dysfunction in one's sense of identity, because then your sense of who you are your sense of I-ness is derived, your sense of self, is derived from whatever your mind is telling you about yourself. Ideas, opinions, viewpoints about yourself. In other words, your sense of who you are is derived from thought. And that was recognized already by the ancient teachers like the Buddha as erroneous, an illusion. There is... It is in all the ancient teachings expressed in different words, there is a deeper sense of self possible to humans that is not thought where you are, where you truly sense yourself, but not as a story in the head. So you no longer derive your identity from something you are telling yourself in your head, which is extremely limiting. And we call that in spiritual terms, ego. It's not quite the same way in which Freud uses ego. So this is the, in, when we use, spiritually use the word ego, basically means complete identification with the stream of thinking and complete absence of awareness. You are then, it's not only the thinking, of course, then what you say and what you do, your actions are totally controlled by the conditioned mind conditioned by the past, reactive patterns. So this is how many people, they relive or live out their parents' unconsciousness, how the, the, the faulty upbringing, the dysfunctional upbringing for their parents, then inflicted on their children. It often goes back many, many generations, similar dysfunctional patterns. So you inherit, the conditioning is inherited, it occupies your mind. 
until somebody comes and says, you told me before we met, this happened to you, you had a very dysfunctional upbringing, and then it can happen, the buck stops here, and your awareness suddenly comes in, and you are no longer forced to reenact the old conditioning of your mind. And for this to stop, this awakening needs to happen. And that basically is the essence of spiritual awakening, which is sometimes misinterpreted. People think spiritual awakening is when you suddenly see, I suddenly saw the angel came towards me. <laughs> or as you say, God spoke to me. Mostly it's your mind. <laughs> but the wonderful thing is it's, it's not that difficult really to step out of the stream of thinking to um, one way of course is meditation it's a tr the traditional approach is you have certain periods of time once or twice a day when you sit down close your eyes and instead of involuntarily being drawn into the continuous stream of thinking usually in with meditation you have a technique or method you focus your attention on one thing, which could be a mantra that you repeat. It could be your breathing. It's a very ancient meditation. It could be the inner feeling in your body, the uh, sense of aliveness that pervade, pervades your body. In other words, you take attention away from thinking. And that's already a great realization that you are able, you have a, actually have a choice of directing attention. You don't have to go to, you don't have to go with your attention all the time where the habitual thought patterns want you to go. The habitual thought patterns want your attention every time. Every thought says, I matter, give me your attention, follow me. They go this way. And another negative thought, and another one, and another one. You know, there was a great analogy made getting to what you were earlier talking about, which is you can't let yourself out of prison unless you actually know you're in prison. Yes. And I think that's, that's yes. really the key. Yes. So if your environment, it completely surrounds you and you're always there, you don't even have a recognition that you're not there. And it's interesting because for myself, and Eckhart and I were talking earlier about, and he was just talking about this event where he woke up, but if you think about what happens to a number of people who have engaged either in chronic negative thought, often manifested by negative behavior, they get so down, and this is like an addict, right? They, they finally get to very bottom, and it's either they're going to die or there has to be this transformation. And this is when you see these sudden, I think, breaks that can give you insight or unfortunately sometimes can lead to uh, death. But uh, I think we talk about these techniques to learn these things, to how to separate, if you will, that ego or that negative talk, and one is certainly mindfulness. But really, one of the things that's really interesting is how is it that the brain is able to do this in this one instant? And this is one of the things that I, I think, looking at the neuroscience of this, we're, we're trying to learn. Because you have spent, I know, and continue to spend many hours in introspection, and we have monks who spent... 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 hours, but I don't think many of us have the ability to spend 10 or 20 or 30,000 hours trying to get there. I don't think it's necessary to spend... Uh, meditation is a wonderful tool for many people, and even meditation is not necessary for everybody. 
Some people awaken spiritually without ever coming into contact with any meditation technique or any spiritual teaching. They, they, they awaken simply because they can't stand the suffering anymore. And then something inside them snaps suddenly and there is a disidentification from thinking. This, for example, has happened to people that I have met and known, people who had a serious illness, fatal. They, they were told they only had a very limited amount of time to live. So it's almost as if future had been removed from them. And a lot of one's thinking is to do with what's the next thing that's going to happen. It's very common. <laughs> so, and when the future is removed, then kind of, or whenever you mentally project yourself to some future, every future, by the way, is, is a thought. Except from a thought of future, there is no future because nobody's ever experienced the future. So uh, you can verify it for yourself because, okay, let's see if you can ever experience the future. No. So what is the future? A thought in your head, basically. <laughs> Without that, there's only ever the present moment. And what is the past? Except a thought in your head because for anything to be life or being is actually inseparable from present moment. Nothing can be exist, live, that is not now. Nothing can live in the past and nothing can live in the future. <laughs> no, so past and future are strongly connected with thinking. So if somebody, if you're being told that you basically have no future, yes, you could take refuge in the past and think only about the past. But what happens to these people who have been told sometimes that they have a very serious illness, only have a few more months to live, they are forced into the present moment because there's nothing else for them anymore. There is no more future to, to escape into mentally. So they are forced into the present moment, into what I call the state of presence, which is that state of being awake. That means the entire mind-made sense of self, the egoic sense of self that, that, that is based on conceptualization, collapses, and something arises that is just pure awareness. And they go like, if I may act it out, <laughs> whereas before they were identified with the, or continuously with the thinking me, me, the self, me. Oh, so dreadful. And then they think only six more months to live is the worst fate that could happen to a human, and it could if you're in your thoughts. And then suddenly something snaps and they go out into, oh, there's only this moment. And so there's an intense awareness of the present moment. By chance, I read last week in the BBC news, there was an Eng there's an English pop uh, musician, I can't remember his name, unfortunately, who has just been told that he has uh, pancreatic cancer and has six months to live. And he said, and this is a very rare case, usually people go into deep suffering first before they come out of it, if they do. This man was told that he had pancreatic cancer and only a few more months to live. He walked out of the doctor's office and he said he was total in a state of total exhilaration and elation because suddenly he was absolutely present and he looked at every, the bla every blade of grass and every little thing was intensely alive. He said, I've never lived like that. 
why was I so worried about my problems all my life? Why did I miss all that? So he said it was the most wonderful thing that ever happened to him. And this is rare to immediately go there. But so there's a potential when you suffer. I've also had many letters, communications from people in prison who say, my sentence is either life or my sentence is another 10, 20 years. And I've read your books or I've listened to a talk and suddenly I realized something and I became totally peaceful. So several people in prison have gone there because they have stepped out of thinking and they realized the source of their unhappiness actually was not the actual situation, although normally it would be regarded as pretty bad to be stuck in a prison cell, and even worse, knowing that you're going to be in for another 20 years or the rest of your life, they realized that ultimately their suffering was not due to the situation, but to the mental commentary about the situation. And so they re the mental commentary became so unbearable, it collapsed by either with the help of a spiritual teaching and sometimes by itself, and what remained was just a sense of pure presence, awareness, mindfulness. And that, that is the real spiritual awakening when something emerges from within you that is deeper than who you thought you were, the, the personal sense of self. So the, personal, the person is still there, but one could almost say that something more powerful shines through the person. And so you don't have to wait for the diagnosis by the doctor or to be put in prison, maybe that's good news. <laughs> no, I don't think you, you either, do you have to do 30,000 hours of meditation or live in an ashram for 20 years? Once you get a glimpse of it, you can invite it into your life, in daily life, I call it mini meditations, and actually step out of thinking and into presence. If I may just go to a little example now just for you to experience as you sit here. You can play around as you sit here with your attention. You can direct your attention, for example, onto your visual perceptions, where this is the room, this is the speaker here, the lights, the ceiling. You can direct your attention into your hands. You can feel the aliveness in your hands. You can choose where your attention goes. It doesn't have to be in thinking. You can direct your attention into the feeling of your body on the chair. You can, so there's a choice of where you want to put your attention. And then you can direct your attention. If I ask you, what does it feel like to be you? This is a very strange question. Uh, now you may not know exactly where to direct your attention. And I'm not talking of the body, you of a deeper sense of beingness. What does it feel like to be you without remembering your history, not me, the person who had that kind of experience and that kind of, no, a deeper sense of the more, the more essential sense of I-ness, of beingness. What does that feel like? So I'm asking you to direct your attention to something very intangible, but you may get a glimpse of what that intangible thing or no thing is. And the strange thing is, it is no different from the attention itself. So when you look for yourself with the spotlight of your attention, and then you realize the attention itself is it, that in other words, <laughs> you recognize yourself as 
the consciousness that was looking for yourself. <laughs> so uh, th this is a little bit paradoxical, but perhaps the truth often is paradoxical. So yeah, look, Jesus, I believe, talked about that, although it's misunderstood mostly I, in churches. I don't think I've heard, ever heard them, these words explained properly. He said, the kingdom of heaven, as we know, he said, the kingdom of heaven is within you. Now, kingdom of heaven, these are words that have belonged to a different time period. Kingdom is not used that much anymore. I think if he lived nowadays, he would, instead of kingdom, he would have said dimension. And heaven refers to a sense of vastness or spaciousness. So this is what is in many spiritual traditions, the term heaven is used. In many languages, sky and heaven is the same word. In English, you have two words. It's the vast expansiveness. So there's a dimension of spaciousness, as I call it. So if we retranslate the words of Jesus into modern terms, the dimension of spaciousness is within you. And then Jesus said, when they asked him, well, where, where, where is the kingdom of heaven and when is it going to come? Because they're always waiting for it to come. And he says, the kingdom of heaven does not, this is lit, by the way, this is a literal, literal from the Bible. The kingdom of heaven does not come with signs to be perceived. You cannot say, ah, it's over here, or look, it's over there. For I tell you, the kingdom of heaven is within you. So he is pointing to that which you can never make into an object of consciousness, like everything else. You can say, here's the table. The table becomes an object in consciousness. A thought that arises becomes an object in consciousness and then dissolves again. An emotion that you feel is an object in consciousness and then it dissolves again. But how is it possible for a sense perception even to be there, for an emotion to be felt, or for a thought to be there? What is it that enables that to be there? It could not be there without the light of consciousness in which it appears. It appears in the light of consciousness. For example, you can doubt that the, where we are right here, that this is actually happening. And there have been many sages and philosophers who questioned the reality of our everyday experience and said, maybe it's all a dream. So philosophers said there's a dreamlike quality to our existence because every experience passes very quickly and it's gone. It's like a dream. So there is a dreamlike quality and we could sit here for hours and argue whether or not this is actually real. <laughs> and of course... Uh, Descartes uh, had to, he, he sat down, Descartes sat down and said, what is it, is there anything that I cannot doubt? So he also looked at, okay, whether or not this table actually exists, I can doubt because it may be a total misinterpretation of something else. Obviously, if I looked at the atomic structure, I would no longer see a table. I would see mostly empty space, 99% empty space and a few atoms and molecules floating around, but we call it a table. And the same with your body. So you can doubt all that, that all that is real, or what is the thing in itself? Maybe can other philosopher asked. So Descartes sat there and said, what, is there anything that I cannot doubt? And he was thinking and thinking and thinking. And then he said, ah, I'm always thinking. <laughs> I think, therefore I am. So he equated <coughs> thinking with existence or beingness if he had not stopped there and had waited a little longer 
and come to the end of thinking where you realize the answer is not be found through thinking and then reach the stage of thoughtless awareness, then he would actually have found the, the, the deeper truth of, of I am. Again, thank you for being with us today. The Into the Magic Shop podcast can be found where you find your most popular podcasts, or you can find us at intothemagicshop.com.